Let's turn our, in our Bibles now to Philippians. Philippians 3, verse 1, and we'll go to 4, verse 1. Kind of nice that I had the opportunity to preach on uh, Philippians, parts of Philippians 1 and 2 a couple weeks ago. This follows on, uh, on the teaching from those sermons. So that gives some context to what we're going to be talking about today. Philippians 3 verse 1 to 4 verse 1, we begin with a call to rejoice in the Lord and we end with Paul speaking of how the Philippians are his joy. He rejoices in them in the Lord. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead." Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject 
all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So far the reading of God's word. Beloved in the Lord, we come to a section in Philippians where we talk about the struggle with evildoers, about pressing toward the prize, about those who have wandered from the faith. And yet, in these things, our section begins and ends with joy. The command, rejoice in the Lord. The fact that Paul finds joy in how the Lord is working in the Philippians. Now the command, rejoice in the Lord here, is not necessarily to push us to always have a smile on our face. Although that certainly is a good thing. Or a faux cheerfulness. It is rather that the Lord is the one we ought to find joy in. The Lord is the one we ought to be connected to, not in the things of earth. This, the Lord, is where we find strength for the grief and sadness in our lives. We do grieve. But even in our grief, we know that our source of joy, our source of strength, is the Lord. So as we walk through Paul's warnings about dogs, evildoers, and mutilators, as we feel his single-mindedness in pursuing the kingdom of Christ, as we are reminded of our own struggle with remaining sin, let us Remember that we do this with and in joy. The joy of knowing that we belong to Jesus. The joy of the Christian in all things, in suffering, in struggle, in loss, is one of the most beautiful testaments to the work of Christ. And we have every reason to be joyful because we are safe in Christ Jesus. We are citizens of heaven. I bring you the word of the Lord this morning under the theme, pursue the prize with joy. First of all, we'll see what we lose in pursuing that prize or what we may lose. And second, we'll see what we gain. Finally, says Paul, halfway through his letter, rejoice in the Lord. But before he comes to his closing comments, he wants to give a warning that he has given the Philippians before. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. He's given this warning, and he needs to do it again because it's a good reminder. It's no trouble for him, and it might just give that extra push in the pursuit of Christ's kingdom that the Philippians need at that moment. What follows is a warning about staying close to Christ in the midst of those who attack Christ or wander from the church of Christ. We must remember here that the main fight 
within the church of the first century was how the new world in Christ related to the world of the New Testament. And in many ways, that continues to be the question that marks the struggles of the church through its history. What is the new world and the new constitution of the church supposed to look like in relation to the Old Testament? And in the first century, it was the Judaizers who were the great enemy of the churches, seeking to bind the consciences of the members of the church with circumcision and the law order of the Old Testament that came with it. Paul, was warned, Paul has warned against the Judaizers time and again, and here again he reminds the Philippians where the source of their strength lies. Don't let the accusations of the Judaizers have any weight with you. Look out for dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Dogs is generally a term for Gentiles. Evildoers too, but more generally would include those among the Jews who did not follow the law. But then Paul adds, those who mutilate the flesh, these are the circumcision party who seek to mutilate the flesh of those who have believed in Christ by demanding they circumcise themselves. This group of names, however, demonstrate the nature of those who mutilate the flesh. Because they have not believed in Christ, they are now dogs, unclean things, people we are to keep a distance from. Dogs were among the unclean things for the Jews of the Old Testament. And this is the irony here. The Jews who have not recognized Christ, supposedly because of their passion for the law, have become the very thing the law taught them to detest. They have become dogs. It's important to note here the word, word evildoers too. The result of Jewish legalism, its focus on the law rather than the God who gave the law, produces hypocrites. Legalism either teaches law without grace or, and they often go together, binds Christians to a law that is not God's law. Hypocrisy is always the fruit of legalism. That's why we're so careful to avoid it. While outwardly a family or group or person will keep the law, secretly they will be an evildoer. And when we're talking about evildoer here, these are not just the sorts of sins that most of us struggle with. These are what we might call the big sins. When Jesus called Pharisees hypocrites, it was because they were completely hypocritical. They were angry at that because of how true it was. Jesus reveals that they are oppressors. They give to charity while they oppress their neighbors, while they oppress the widow and the orphan. 
Because there is no life and the focus is outward, the legalist will always produce all types of evil while remaining outwardly compliant with the law. Stand against those, says Paul, for we are the circumcision. Wow. It's no longer those who are physically circumcised but all those who have believed in Christ, all those who are in Christ. It's not those who mutilate the flesh, but those who believe in Christ Jesus. Even though circumcision is done away with, the church of Jesus Christ represents the circumcision. The church is the new Israel marked through the one baptism of Jesus Christ. And what's that baptism? That's his death and resurrection. In Colossians, Jesus' cross was called a circumcision. Jesus was cut off from the earth. And when we die in him through baptism, through faith, We are in the cut-off one, the circumcised one. And so we are the circumcision without ever having to be circumcised. Notice the irony here. Those who used to be the dogs, those who used to be the unclean, have now become the circumcision. Those who are literally circumcised have become dogs. And we, the circumcision, are defined by two things. We worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ, putting no confidence in the flesh. Why is worshiping by the Spirit of God such a mark? This is because true worship was done through the Spirit of God. Before Christ, the temple was necessary for true worship. After Christ... All may worship in spirit and truth. This was symbolized by the fact that the Lord's Supper, a sacramental meal, could now be had anywhere. You see, in the Old Testament, sacramental meals could only be done in the temple. Now, by the Spirit of God, all believers anywhere could participate in Christ through this supper. They worship through the Spirit of God. That's where the worship of God is done now in the New Testament. The second mark has two sides to it. We glory in Jesus Christ, putting no confidence in the flesh. Our glory, our hope, our gain is Jesus Christ. The central foundation and the end of our faith is Jesus Christ. The flesh and the deeds of the flesh, whatever cuts we may have in the flesh, they don't matter. They're nonsense. They're useless for our eternal destination. And now Paul goes on into a long explanation about how he glories in Jesus Christ rather than the flesh. You see, if you're willing to pursue Christ, you have to be willing to forget the fleshly things of life and remain exclusively focused on Christ. And yet Paul has every reason to be confident in the flesh. Though I myself have a reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. 
circumcised on the eighth day. He wasn't part of one of those families who were not careful to get circumcised on time. Of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. No mixed blood here. He wasn't, a, he wasn't the progeny of a mixed marriage. As to the law of Pharisee, he wasn't one of those Sadducees who didn't take the Bible seriously or one of those rebellious zealots. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And he wasn't a fake in this. He wasn't a hypocrite. What a resume. But that wasn't enough to allow him to see Christ. Christ had to grab him, to convert him. We know the story of the Damascus Road. Paul is knocked off his horse. And he responds with faith. And whatever gain I had in those things, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. If we know the story of Paul, that's absolutely true. His, the people who would have formerly seen him as a hero now turn on him. His his, his uh, connection to Israel, his connection to the tribe of Benjamin, all of those things don't matter because he stands for Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. This is the hard part of the call to come to Christ, the call to come and die. We are to count all the fleshly things that make us up as a person as nothing. Our country, our status, our wealth, anything that we are tempted to value more than God, we have to die to those things in holding to Christ. At its heart, this is an attitude. Paul is called to care more about the kingdom of Christ than the future of Israel. That's a strange mindset to come to for someone who was so, so steeped in, in the Jewish religion, especially since Israel is the chosen one of God. But because they did not recognize Christ, he must count Israel as a loss to him rather than reject Christ. And if you read about how Paul thinks of Israel in, in Romans 9 to 11, you can see how hard that is for him, how grievous a thing that is for him. He weeps over Israel. So we count family or ethnicity or denominational background as lost to us rather than reject Christ. One of the most common reasons for accepting homosexuality today is the fact that we have family or friends who experience homosexual urges or who engage in homosexual practice. Christian leaders change their position on homosexuality through these experiences rather than calling friends and family to repentance. It's easier to 
accept them, encourage that, especially with modern society. <clears throat> and that's because they didn't instill this attitude in their hearts from the beginning of the Christian life. They would prefer the possibility of losing Jesus Christ to the possibility of losing a family member through their willingness to continue to confess biblical morality. And of course, this is a case where it is most obvious. But the same sort of questions come up when our status status in society is at stake or other fleshly things such as family background. All these things, all the things of the flesh are rubbish compared to having Christ. And we have to view these things as rubbish if we risk losing Christ for the sake of these things. This is what it means to have we go back to the second half of chapter 2, Paul says that Timothy, he recommends Timothy because he has the interests of Christ first. This is the radical call of the Gospels, to hate father and mother and embrace Christ. Not literally hate, of course, but to count the love of Christ as far more important than the love of father and mother. All of this are connections to the earth, our connections to earth uh, versus our connections to heaven. It takes time and patience. Later, Paul says, and we'll go in more into that uh, later, if anyone of you think otherwise, if anyone of, of you are too connected to the things of this earth, God will reveal that also to you. In Christ, we continue to have earthly things that weigh us down. But God is patient, uncovering these things over time through the Spirit of God. If, if we realized the total weight of our ungodly earthly attachments all at once, that might be too much weight for us to bear. So God shows us these things over time, allowing us to fight against each one so that more and more we are animated by the Spirit and no longer by the flesh. Because in Christ, in Christ, we have everything we need. We can lose the things of earth and remain joyful in the Spirit because what God is doing in Christ is bigger than all that this world can give. Whoever loves his life will lose it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. We do not need anything of the things of, of the earth when we are found in Christ. And that brings us to our second point, what we gain. The thing I gain in pursuing Christ, is Christ himself. And that is one of the greatest things we can have in the whole world. If you're willing to die to self in him, you can have all the things that you genuinely need in him. Paul considers all things rubbish so that he may gain Christ and be found in him. 
When you have Christ, you belong to him, being incorporated into him. You no longer have a righteousness that, of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from, from God that depends on faith. Because of what Christ has done, I can respond by faith and so share in the righteousness of God. And that same faith that allows me to share in the righteousness of God allows me to know him and the power of the resurrection. The power of the resurrection. That strengthens me in living out my life to God. I share in his life and in his righteousness through what Christ did. And now comes the twist. Knowing the power of the resurrection, I follow Christ in his sufferings. And may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Christ died. Christ was the first example of the one who died to the world. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Paul is fulfilling the calling he called the Philippians to earlier. He is working out his salvation with fear and trembling. He is pursuing the course toward the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. Just as the Spirit works in us who are working out our salvation with fear and trembling, so Paul is encouraged to make the salvation of Christ his own because Christ has made him his own. Christ made him his own on the Damascus road and he responds through this pursuit of the promises of Jesus Christ. Day by day, he says, I trust in the Lord. And I'm going to live out of that trust in the Lord. In the same way God makes us his own through baptism and the corresponding response, and, and the corresponding response of faith. And we are all encouraged here to pursue that same perfection that Paul is pursuing here in our text. That same perfection which we will finally reach in the resurrection from the dead where we will receive new bodies that are fully animated by the Spirit of God and not by the principles of the flesh. Now, Paul is not encouraging a sort of perfectionism here, which some at that time might have read into what he was saying. He agrees with Apostle John's words, the Apostle John's words in 1 John entirely. He who says he has no sin is a liar and the truth is not in him. Rather, Paul is keeping his eyes on Jesus, making sure nothing pulls him off course, either to the right or to the left. Brothers, I do not consider I have made it my own. This goes directly against any type of easy believism that can be common in many circles. As an example, now that I believe in Christ, I can just sit back on the grace that he has given. It's all done after all. 
Yes, the payment is paid, but God calls us to work for the sake of his kingdom, both within ourselves, in ridding ourselves of sin, and in building up the body of Christ. And we can go to Lord's Day 23 and 24. This is a natural thing, because Christ has worked a new heart in me. That new heart seeks to overcome the evil that remains within me. That fight, that struggle, that pursuing the prize of grace is the Spirit working in me. Is the Spirit working new life in me? So we work for the sake of his kingdom, both within ourselves in ridding ourselves of sin and in building up the body of Christ so that the light of Christ shines all the more brightly and overcomes the darkness of this world round about. And in the resurrection, once we have participated in the resurrection of the body, we can rejoice in the reward that God gives for our service in his kingdom. That's why Paul adds, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. And the word forgetting is actually not entirely the most helpful. It's not literally forgetting, but not counting as more important than Jesus. It's more of a sense of these things I'm not going to prioritize. I'm not going to prioritize what lies behind. And straining forward to what lies ahead, the resurrection of the dead, I press forward to the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He's pressing for that prize, that reward that we receive for those good works we store up in heaven. We can think of those words from the last battle from the Narnia series as, the, uh, as those who are saved are brought to heaven, they go further up and further in. And we already, in a sense, are doing that now, ever moving upward, motivated by pleasing our God and by the prize that lies at the end for the service we have given. Let those of you who are mature think in this way. We all want to be mature. We all want to be wise. These are good things to be. Paul frames it in this way to push his listeners to desire this mature outlook on life. This life considers the things of the flesh, the merely human identities and orders we attach to ourselves as far less important than the identity of a Christian or one who belongs to Christ Jesus. And if in, any, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. There's an area in your life where your focus is on what is earthly or fleshly. Paul trusts that God will reveal that to you over time. We've, we've seen in the book of Philippians how Paul notes that some preach Christ out of selfish ambition and pride. 
He's noted that Timothy stands out as unique because of how single-mindedly he pursues the interests of Christ. Paul realizes that there's a lot of things that still have their hooks in a lot of Christians. I'm sure we know how our neighbor does not single-mindedly pursue the interests of Jesus Christ either. We can see the fleshly patterns in their life. But what Paul calls us to here is we trust that God is revealing to them, even as he reveals in our own lives, how we like of the things of this earth a little too much. Now, of course, these are minor enough points that Paul might see them, but does not address them. He trusts that the Spirit is leading each person. Because they have the center correct, we can trust that God will lead through his Spirit It's a helpful thing to keep in mind in our own interactions with one another as we see frustrating blind spots in the lives of one another. But this is not primarily about our brother or our neighbor. It's about you. How do your interests interfere with those of the gospel? Where is the Spirit leading you? What fleshly things like status or identity have an undue influence in your life and how you work out your salvation? Paul encourages the brothers to join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Paul calls us to imitate a certain character here, those who count fleshly things as loss and Christ as gain, those who reflect, reflect Christ himself and his work. We go back to the first part of Philippians 2 again. The Christ who was willing to give up his rights for our sake and was willing to be obedient to the Father, even to death on a cross. Then we come to the enemies of the cross. It's not clear what Paul is talking about here. Possibly apostates, those who have rejected the Christian religion, or those who have been interested in the gospel for a short time. Or considering the beginning section about mutilators of the flesh, the Jews who have rejected the Christ who came to his own, but his own did not receive him. Considering the context, it's likely that he is referring to the Jews here. We know that Paul has a heart for his own people. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. The Jews are supposed to be the people of God, but they have focused on the flesh, not on Christ. In contrast, we can pursue heavenly things because our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior the lord jesus christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body 
by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. We are citizens in heaven, and we serve an all-powerful Lord who is powerful not only to rule over all things, but is powerful to transform us, transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. We can imitate Paul not by the flesh, but by knowing that we are safe with Jesus in heaven already. Further, we have the same reward that we will receive, the resurrection of the body. And that is one of the greatest things that motivates our willingness to count all things as loss rather than lose this hope. Our great reward is to have new bodies with our Lord Jesus Christ. We can count all things as lost because our safety is assured in heaven. And more, we will receive everything in him. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Just as Paul calls the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord in what he has done, so now he rejoices in them. They are his joy and his crown. They are a taste of the reward that the Lord has given him for his work on earth. They are his crown because they crown the work that Paul is doing through their faith and good works. Their work is a testament to Paul's work. So they give back to Paul, and the greatest thing they can do for Paul is continue to stand firm in the work of the gospel. God gives joy and a crown to those who faithfully labor for his kingdom, and that is manifest in those who through our labors believe and stand firm in the gospel. As we continue to place our happiness and our joy in God, God completes our joy through those who believe and are confirmed in belief through our labors. All glory be to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's stand to sing in response from Psalm 17, verses 1, 4, 5, and 6.